You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. So my name is Walter. I want to thank you guys for worshiping here with us this morning. I know it's a dreary, cold, rainy day, and I know that none of you would let that stop you from worshiping with us because you're here. But I know it's a challenge to come out, and I'm grateful you had chose to be with us today. I do want to make a note that during this time, you are able to give in a variety of ways. You can give online. You can give as you exit. You can scan the QR code. You can even text, surprisingly enough, and give that way. I encourage you to give and support the mission of what God is doing here at Holmes Avenue. I know that as we look around, it is easy to say, oh, what is happening? But the Lord is being faithful and working in our midst, transforming our hearts and minds, and bringing good things to his people. So I want to encourage you in this day that the Lord is good and he is still faithful to his people. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, we are looking at Paul's third missionary journey and we're going to be looking in Acts chapter 19 today, chapter 19. We're going to be in Acts 19, looking at verses 21 through 41, 21 through 41. We're going to be picking up this last chunk of 19. The title of today's message is The Gospel in Opposition, and I've got a question for you guys. Have you heard of the Salvation Army, right? You probably are pretty familiar with those guys, hang outside department stores, wearing a nice little red apron, a little Santa hat sometimes, jingling a bell at you, just asking for donations. It's a pretty harmless group, right? Pretty mild. Well, there was a time when the Salvation Army was a little bit more controversial than they are today, right? They're, today, they're just any other charity, right? Any other organization you might see, but they actually began in the 1800s as a temperance movement. They began in London by William and Catherine Booth, and really their goal was to reach out people who were struggling with alcohol, who were struggling with gambling, people who were in prostitution and sex trafficking, all these groups of society that people did not want to associate with, and their goal was to reach them with the good news of the gospel, to offer hope, to offer a way out to serve these people. See, this group of people that began the Salvation Army They were very outspoken about their desire to wage war on these sins that they felt were wrecking society. They organized themselves quite literally as an army, and they began to speak out and march against these evils. They would go through the city of London, and as people were entering and exiting bars, and they would offer hope and good news to them. As people were entering and exiting brothels, they would offer the gospel to them. They would offer to prostitutes to literally, we will take you away today and pay for all of your expenses if you'll leave this life follow Jesus. Simply put, they desire to see things change within their city, within their world. Now, perhaps not surprisingly, they gained some, some traction very quickly in England and began to make an impact. They began to make an impact that so quickly they made a difference that they encountered opposition. Now, you've heard of the Salvation Army, but have you ever heard of the Skeleton Army? This is not a joke. That's a real organization. You see, the Skeleton Army that you've probably never heard of is a group that actually arose in opposition with, to the Salvation Army. This was started by a group of people who were bar owners, who were owners of brothels, who desired to put the Salvation Army out of business. You see, they saw the things that they were doing and recognized that this was going to have a negative impact upon their livelihood. 
upon the very things they counted on to stay in business and provide for themselves. You see, even in the midst of what was supposed to be a Christian nation in 1800s England, there came opposition to these basic moral principles, these basic things we believe as Christians. They fought for decades against the work of the Salvation Army, and by the end of the 1800s, the passion and fervor of the skeleton army had faded away in the face of a message of hope that was being offered. Now you hear this and you say, thank you for the history lesson, I know. What's the point of this? Well, I believe that what we see here is not just a new story that we encounter in the world. This isn't something that just comes about once in a blue moon. No, this is a notable example, one notable example, of a same story, the same issue that we see pop up throughout history. You see, the issue is this. The issue is that the gospel is a radical message that produces radical change that leads to radical opposition. When the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed and demonstrated, it changes the hearts and minds of people, and that invites opposition from the world, from the work of Satan and his forces. And so ultimately, as we recognize the fact that the gospel is at work in our hearts and minds, that it's changing us so that we might see the world change, we are going to encounter opposition. In fact, a mark that we can look through the New Testament and study of faithfulness, that if we are being faithful, we will encounter opposition. And so as we look at this section of Scripture, my hope and my prayer is that we would see the gospel in light of opposition, that if we are living in faithfulness to God, we will encounter conflict. It's going to happen. Yet if we're living in peace and prosperity with no conflict and opposition, we must ask the question, are we indeed living faithfully to the gospel? I think this and a variety of other questions are covered here in this section of Acts 19. It's a lengthier section, so I won't ask you to stand and read through all 22 verses, but we'll read as we go, if I may. If you're taking notes, and I hope that you are, I want you to go ahead and get our first point, though. You need this, that the gospel is a disruptive message. The gospel is a disruptive message. Look with me at verse 21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So we enter into this section of Scripture. We want to make sure we have our bearings. So Paul's in the middle of his third missionary journey here, and he's now got the itch to travel again as he does so frequently. He's been in Ephesus for several years now, and he desires to go visit some churches that he's ministered to and visit them yet again. He references going to Corinth here, and we think that this maybe is around the time of him writing 2 Corinthians, of him preparing to go visit them. We also see him reference that he wants to go to Rome, and this is again getting to the point where he's going to write the book of Romans, writing to the church in Rome saying, I desire to come to you, to minister to you for your encouragement and to reach Spain. While he's here in Ephesus, he's encouraged by the faithfulness of God through Timothy and Erastus. They are serving in Macedonia, in Corinth on his behalf. And 
things seem to be going really well, right? In the last few weeks, the Lord has moved tremendously in the book of Acts. He is awakening people to life throughout Asia. There's nowhere you go in Asia where the gospel's not been heard. And this is a good thing, isn't it? Well, naturally, if things are going well, Satan is going to rear his ugly head and bring some conflict up, bring some opposition up. We see that here in the following verses, that opposition begins immediately as we hear this good news. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger Not only in this, that the trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So as we continue in our passage, we see that Paul's making plans to visit his next areas of the missionary journey, and we've encountered a problem. I think Luke writes a little bit uh, tongue-in-cheek that there is a rising, quite a little disturbance. No, he says it's no little disturbance. We've got a big problem forming, a big issue that's coming to bear here in Ephesus. We meet this man named Demetrius here in verse 24, and we don't know a lot about him. We see that he's a silversmith. His primary work is to create these silver uh, shrines, these false idols for people in the temple of Artemis that he and many others are working in this craft to create these things for people to worship both in the temple and in their homes. Now, as we continue, you probably want to know who is Artemis, right? Maybe you're not up to the, uh, the current list of Roman gods. There are a lot of them, right? Uh, Artemis is one of the Roman gods uh, that is a lowercase g that is worshipped by the Romans. Uh, Artemis is actually one of the most significant, the most significant one that we find in Ephesus. Her temple of primary worship, the center of the Artemis worship cult, is actually found in Ephesus. There's a meteorite that fell from heaven that vaguely resembles a female head. If you squint and kind of look at it, and maybe you've had a little bit of drink, that's what it looks like. It's this vague-shaped human head, and they said this is Artemis's head that fell from heaven, and so this must be where she wants us to worship her. Ephesus is a very deeply religious city. Much of that worship, that desire for religion, for faith, is wrapped up in Artemis. In fact, it's such a central part of the culture that every spring in Ephesus in this time, that they have a yearly worship festival that honors Artemis, that people from all over the Roman Empire, they come to Ephesus to worship Artemis, to celebrate her, to praise her. Some scholars even think that in this moment, this moment of conflict we encounter in, that this is actually perhaps set during one of those seasonal worship festivals. That everyone's coming to town to worship Artemis, and this is going to be a big deal. Well, Demetrius thinks it is a big deal. 
Now, Demetrius, maybe he is a religious worshiper of Artemis. Maybe he, he cares about this pantheon of gods the Romans worship. What I do know is that Demetrius is very concerned about his pocketbook. He's concerned about his income. You see, he has prospered from his work as a silversmith. So have many of the craftsmen that have gathered together. And he says to them, I'm a little concerned about my income. I'm a little bit concerned about the money that's coming in because I hear Paul talking about these things and I see that less and less people are coming to worship Artemis each and every day because this Paul is out here persuading them that Artemis is a false god. He's got concerns about this impact of the gospel, mostly because it's affecting his pocketbook. He says that this gospel that Paul's preaching, it's not only spread over all of Asia, but it's turning people away from the gods that they once worshipped. You see, it's so bad that Demetrius, who his job, his primary income is making these silver idols for people. He sees danger on the horizon. You see, he recognizes that there's quickly going to come a day where no one needs or wants one of these false idols that he makes because of the gospel of Christianity. Because the good news of the gospel, he clearly sees a day coming when he will no longer have a job making these idols. He wraps up this speech with, I think, a nod towards his concern about the worship of Artemis, but his focus, his primary focus, is the financial impact that Christianity is having on him and his craftsmen. Now, what do we do with this? We see this and we wonder what's going on, what's going to happen. Why does this have any significance for you and I today as Christians? Well, I believe as we just look ahead, a verse or two, you can read ahead in 28, 29. We're not going there yet, but you see that this begins to lead to some significant opposition towards Paul, towards Christianity, towards the gospel. This is going to be a problem for them. And I would submit this before you. When the gospel is being faithfully, emphasis on faithfully, proclaimed and demonstrated, it will lead to a powerful disruption of our lives. It will lead to a powerful disruption in our lives. Just look at the last few weeks that we've spent in Ephesus. As we hear the story of the last few years that the Lord has been working in Ephesus, we've seen that there is a very powerful spiritual awakening occurring here in Ephesus. I mean, just last week, we saw Christians who are burning spell books. These spell books are valued at over 50,000 silver pieces in that time. I did a little research. In today's money, we are talking about roughly $6 million worth of spell books. Have you ever seen $6 million worth of books? No, that's a lot of books. And what we're getting at is that the reality is that in this moment, in spiritual awakening, this looks like people who are abandoning sin, who are wholeheartedly pursuing the righteousness of Christ, and they are determined to abandon sinful habits and practices. You see, this awakening we see here, this is the awakening that we pray for within our churches. This is what we pray for. We pray for a real and radical repentance of the deepest rooted sins that people are clinging to. 
This is what a spiritual awakening looks like. That people would say, I have millions of dollars worth of books that are taking me away from the Lord. What am I going to do with them? I'm not going to sell them. I'm going to burn them. We're not talking about book burnings. We're not concerned about burning books, but they're recognizing this reality. That if there's anything in my life that's going to keep me from the Lord, I must remove it. This is such an encouraging, powerful thing to see in Scripture. Because this really lets us dream and pray. This helps shape, I believe, how we pray as a church, as people. You see, this inspires me to dream of a day where drug dealers, where strip clubs, where abortion clinics, and other dens of iniquity, they worry about their finances because the gospel has changed too many people's hearts. I dream, I pray for a day in which the people of our city, of our state, of our world are so changed that there then comes opposition from people. There then comes deep opposition to our faith because the gospel has changed everything. Do you dream of a day like that where the gospel has made such an impact where we live, work, and play that people then come into opposition with it because it's turning everything upside down? Whether you dream about this or not, because I know I do, this is why we have such an emphasis on evangelism here at Holmes Avenue. This is why you talk about us. We talk about proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel all the time. This is why we spend time teaching you how to share the good news. This is why we work through challenging questions. This is why we dig deep into these things because the most important thing we can do once we receive our faith from Jesus is to then give it away. Because that is the very work and call to us as Christians, as ambassadors for Christ. Ultimately, if maybe you're like me and you dream of a day where a city is turned upside down because of the work of the gospel, where things don't look the same, where the world has changed and people say the gospel has wrecked everything for the good of God and his kingdom. That change doesn't come because a culture changes, because society changes. No, that change comes because individuals have been changed. That change comes because individual people who are valuable in the sight and image of God, have been transformed by the renewing power of the gospel of Jesus. Simply put, if we want to see a city change, we want to see our world change, we must first go see individuals change. Yet, as Romans 10 says, how can they hear without someone preaching it to them? How can they come to faith? How can they hear the good news of the gospel if no one is standing on the corner proclaiming the good news that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost, that the world has been changed 2,000 years ago and we are no longer held captive to sin, shame, or anything. We have been redeemed if we trust in Jesus. I ask that if this vision of, of spiritual awakening stirs your heart, to awaken something, lights that fire inside of you to see people transformed by the redeeming grace of Jesus, then yes, invite someone to church with you. Yes, invite them to an event. Yes, do these things. But more importantly than that, invite them into relationship with Jesus. 
I know you've heard this. I know you're aware of this, but I'm going to get on a soapbox for a moment and just say this. It is not the pastor's job to proclaim the good news of the gospel for you. It's not our job. I want to be clear that each and every week, we will faithfully proclaim the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world from this pulpit. We will faithfully in our own lives seek out gospel conversations with people, proclaiming the good news of the gospel to them. But it is your responsibility as an ambassador of Christ, as someone who has been redeemed and restored by the goodness of God, to proclaim of the redeeming faith you've been given. You have been saved to proclaim your good, this message of the goodness of your God. As always, your pastors are here to help you in that. You have hard questions, you have challenges, you don't know how to start, you don't even know what to say. We are here to help navigate through that. But it is your God-given responsibility by the authority of God and his word to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The very act of evangelism is obedience and worship to a saving God. As you consider this, I just I, I want to encourage you in the midst of this. I know when we talk about things like evangelism, that it's hard, quite frankly. It can be challenging to share the gospel. It can be downright difficult sometimes to do that. Kelly hates getting in Ubers with me because what's going to come is I'm going to talk to our driver about Jesus. She hates it. We took two Uber rides. We were in Atlanta for a World Series game two years ago. And in the first one, we get in the car. I've never met these people in my life. The first car, we leave with this woman, me giving her God-centered, Christ-centered parenting advice, and her saying, I thank the Lord that we met you today because this is what I needed to hear. In the second ride, I've got this guy who we bond over a shared love of the Braves, of decades of watching the Braves. We talk about the faith of players who have heard the good news of the gospel, responded, and navigate through his views on faith and the church. It's not because I'm special. It's not because I'm bright. It's because I hear the words of God and I think, I have been redeemed, I have been saved, so that I might be able to give my faith away, that I might encourage those around me, that I might see them hear the good news of the gospel and trust in the grace of God. This is why we've been redeemed. But I want to encourage you in that because I know it's hard. It is a challenge sometimes to have the courage to say those words, to even know the right words to say, to even take that step out in faithfulness, believing that the path is not going to crumble in front of you, but trusting the Lord is sovereign. I want you to hear something, that this disruptive gospel we see here, this powerful message of hope, not only has changed lives for centuries, but it took hundreds of years for this gospel to change things like the violence in the Roman Colosseums. It took hundreds of years for this gospel to end evils like slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. It took centuries of work for this gospel to change some of the fundamentalist, most vilest institutions in our human culture. Yet, the gospel won. 
The gospel won. What fills those Roman Colosseums now? Is it violence and gore? No. They're empty graves. Do the great slave ships carrying hundreds of souls into slavery still cross the ocean today? No, because they've all been sunk because of the gospel. The gospel will win. The Lord will do everything he intends to do if we are faithful to proclaim this message. Yes, it can take a very long time for the gospel to change hearts, to change minds, but we do not give up. Continue to take the gospel that's changed your life into the places where you live, work, and play. Keep praying. Keep speaking. Keep loving. Keep bringing people into your life so they might see the renewing work of the gospel in your life. Don't give up because the Lord has never given up on you. And so as we see these things, we hear these things, we rejoice that there's good news here that this gospel is changing everything for the people of Ephesus. This gospel is moving and working and it's disrupting lives and cities in a good way. Yet, even in the midst of that, Satan is working, he's begun to work and we're going to see what this opposition looks like in the coming verses. You see, here's a true reality of the gospel. The gospel will lead to spiritual opposition. The gospel will lead us into spiritual opposition. Just look at verse 29. When they, the silversmiths, they heard this. I'm on verse 28. I told you to go to verse 29. Kimberly's following directions. When they heard this, they were enraged and they cried out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. You see, Demetrius and his friends begin what I think we can describe as a riot here in the city of Ephesus. They're chanting through the streets and they've gathered this large crowd and the city's in turmoil. I mean, just imagine, you know, cars are overturned, stuff's on fire, people are marching to the streets, like just whatever picture of craziness you can imagine. And they march right down the Acadian Way, the central road in Ephesus that runs from the harbor into the theater at the heart of it. And they march down to this theater, they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, and they come in and they are chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The entire city is in turmoil, confusion, and an uproar over this message. Well, obviously, we're not going to sit silently. And, and as Christians stand by, Paul doesn't desire to do that. In verse 30, we see that Paul desires to go speak to the crowd. Verse 30, it says, But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him, were urging him not to go into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in some confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. They recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Paul, naturally, as he sees this conflict, this disruption, he does what any of us would do, and he wants to step right into it. No, most of us aren't as dumb as Paul. We would stand and go, that's nice, let's lock the door, let's go in the back, cut the lights out, let's pretend we're not home. And Paul wants to go out in the middle of it. Everybody around him knows this is a little bit dangerous. This is, this is crazy, Paul. You see, we know it was incredibly dangerous because even the disciples who've spent years with Paul here, they go, Paul, you, you can't do this. You shouldn't go out in this. We even have this reference to the Azarks. These are local civic leaders. They are friends of Paul. And they even sent a message to him and say, Paul, stay home. We know how you act. You're going to go and you're going to get beat and stoned and it's probably going to work out, but you can't go out there, Paul. Stay home. Now, Paul stays away as our story goes and the crowd begins to manifest some confusion, right? They're not all sure why they're here. They've heard this chant and they've come along. They know they're proclaiming the greatness of Artemis, but why? Why are they here? Why is it so important today? Well, this crowd seems dangerous and confused, and into this, some of them urge a Jew named Alexander to try and speak to them. We're not really sure why they urged Alexander to speak. What was the significance of this? At this time, you remember that many people, they believe that Christians are just offshoots of Jewish culture, that they are Jews who just do some different things, who have some different views, and maybe he's going to defend Christians, maybe he's going to speak against them and make it clear because they're so dangerous. Hey, Jews and Christians, not the same thing. Get mad at them, not at me, right? The crowd couldn't care less. They don't care. They shout him down, they lump use them with the Christians and they just shout that you're all troubled Artemis. You're all causing problems. So we must condemn you all. Well, how's it end? What happens? Well, in verse 35, someone begins to speak to them to show a little sense. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men, pointing to Gaius and Archistes, who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with them have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said things, he dismissed the assembly. So it's interesting that what settles the crowd down is not Paul coming out, is not some military leader coming, it's the clerk. And if that doesn't show you the power of clerks, this should show you that. This clerk, town clerk comes and he's come to settle things down. We don't really know much about him. He's just this, this, 
local civic official. He's one of the highest officials in the city, and he's got a lot of influence on how things work in the local government. So maybe he's the right guy to show up. But he comes and he begins to speak to the crowd. You see, first he tells them that he honors this long heritage that Ephesus has as the primary worship center for Artemis. He's telling the crowd that Artemis has long been worshipped here and will be worshipped here for long after. He says that these things are undeniable. The fact that we are the center of worship of Artemis, everyone knows that in the Roman Empire. Everyone understands who we are. They know who we believe in. So let's all calm down a little bit and settle down. Secondly, he tells them, you've brought these men here who've seemingly done nothing against the goddess. But if you've got any evidence that they've been blasphemers, if they've done anything wrong, then we can deal with it within the courts and the legal system. We can charge them and condemn them. Finally, he urges the crowd, he encourages them that you need to deal with it properly or else we as a city, as Ephesians, we will face consequences. See, he's not speaking out about personal conviction, but he's speaking out about fear of the Romans. You see, Romans like law and order. And if this riot continues and spreads and becomes bigger than it is, then the local Roman officials are going to call in who to settle things down? They're going to call in the Roman legions, the citizen soldiers, the one who have been set aside to conquer the known world. You can imagine that an army's version of settling things down is quite a bit different than the local clerk's version of settling things down. This man knows that if things don't get under control, he is inviting violence and destruction to him, to the city, that they will come and they will fix things because you can't complain when you're dead is their view. And so he's telling them the city is going to face consequences. We must handle this rightly and properly. Somehow, in the midst of this, This crowd is swayed and they determine they are settled by his warnings of consequences and his willingness to hear their issues in courts. They disperse. You can imagine he wipes some sweat off his brow and says, whew, dodged a close one. You're also probably wondering, what does this have to do with Christianity and our faith? As we look at this opposition that's come forward, you might say that This opposition, it was just an accidental thing, right? Some men got a little greedy, it got the better of them, and we got into this moment where it was this worship festival and maybe things got a little out of hand and it was just all a big mistake. It was just a big accident. No one intended for it to get this far. Yet I would submit to you that Satan and his forces intended for it to go much further. It's true that greed and... and Fervor and drunkenness probably contributed towards this, yet here's the nature of it. This riot was the result of the disruptive effect that Paul's missionary activities were having on the culture. This riot does not happen if Paul is not faithfully proclaiming the gospel that is persuading hearts and minds to look to Lord Jesus as their God that is turning them away from false idols, that is leading them away from these sinful things. If Paul is not here proclaiming the gospel, this riot doesn't happen. This riot happened because the gospel has been proclaimed. 
This gospel message has literally been changing things in such a way that it threatened the local economy, right? I mean, people are wondering if they will even have a job after Paul is done proclaiming the good news of the gospel. But this isn't the first time Paul has done something that's caused a little bit of turmoil, if we can look through the book of Acts, right? Paul's not known for being a man who leaves things at a comfortable position, We've seen his opponents time after time, most recently in Acts 17, proclaim that Paul and his friends, they just turn the world upside down when they show up. They come in and they start talking about this Lord and Savior they have named Jesus. And wouldn't you know it, things eat crazy. People start acting in a different way. They start living differently. This church forms and While the city is better, things just are vastly different than they were. How does this happen? What's the effect here? You know, I've said earlier that this issue, this story, is just one that comes up time after time after time as we look through history. There's a a great book, and I'm a book nerd, so forgive me. This titled Destroyers of the Gods. It's by a theologian named Larry Hurtado, who has since passed on. But in this book, he makes this argument that the thing that disrupted the worship of the Roman gods and the Roman Empire, he makes the argument that the Roman Empire fell, not because of outside influence, not because of poor leadership, not because of military disasters. The Roman Empire fell because of Christians. He said the thing that destroyed the Roman Empire was the way that Christians lived. They lived in such a way that was contrary to the culture, They valued things like proper biblical sexuality. They valued life in general. They were pro-life. They served anyone and everyone. That wherever you found Christians, the city was better and prosperous. And Dr. Hurtado makes the argument that the thing that destroyed the Roman Empire is because their message was that Roman Empire will bring Pax Romana, that is Roman peace. We will make all things right and better. And everyone who lived in Roman Empire looked at Christianity and said, that is a lie because the only thing that's brought peace and that has made things better are these Christians. And so he argues that the thing that brought down this empire was a compelling community. A group of people who lived in a way that was fundamentally reflective of the goodness of their Savior. You see, Hurtado, I believe, is correct. That this message that brought fear to the Artemis worshipers is the same message that laid low the Roman Empire the same message that we preach today that we proclaim into a lost and dying world I'd like to remind you of a of a simple fact you're not maybe not a student of history you don't know this but I don't know the last time that you've met an Artemis worshiper definitely haven't stumbled into the local Piggly Wiggly and ran into someone who says they worship Artemis right you've probably actually not heard of Artemis in a number of years since you were in school I just want to remind you of this fact that this Artemis worship cult that they made such a big deal here in Ephesus no longer exists. Artemis Temple, it no longer stands. We know where it was because we found its ruined remnants. That 
stone they talked about that fell from heaven of Artemis coming down from the heavens to be here on earth to receive worship from her people. It's destroyed. Demetrius and his silversmith, we found wreckage of their idols and shrines. In comparison, not only does Christianity still stand, but it is growing around the world today. Here's the last idea that that we need to consider, that I need you to to look to. The truth is we've seen a a societal culture, a, a societal change take place here in Ephesus. But the truth is that Jesus did not come to change a society He did not come to change a culture. He came to change individual hearts and minds. He came to change people like you and I. It's only when hearts and minds are changed that we see society and our world change. So this message of hope that Jesus brought, it's so radical that it not only changes who we are and how we live, but it invites conflict with those who do not live in the same way. And it's not a conflict from us because we are here pursuing the reconciliation of all of those, first to God and then to one another. But it brings conflict upon us because they look at what we have and go, everything I have is nothing in comparison to this. You see, the Romans, they believe that Artemis came from heaven to be worshipped because humanity had something to offer her. Because she needed us. She needed something from humanity. Yet we look to the Lord Jesus who came from heaven, not because he needed something from us, but rather because he had something to offer to us. You see, he came from heaven to seek and save the law so that if we trust in him, we will have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. This is a message of hope, of faith that has stood the test of time. This is the message of the gospel of Jesus that wrecked the Roman Empire, turned the world upside down, and 2,000 years later, things still look different because of it. This is the same gospel that we proclaim today. This is the same gospel that has saved you and I. This is the same gospel that still has power to save. And so today, as you're here, hearing this message of hope, of salvation, of the work of God, I invite you to rejoice and to celebrate in this good news. If you're a Christian, then yet again, you celebrate for another day the work of Jesus in your life, rejoicing in his faithfulness and his goodness, And my hope and my prayer is that you look upon this gospel message and say, I desperately need to give this faith away so that others might know the glory of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. And you're here and you wonder, is there good news? Is there hope to be found? Maybe there have been things that you find that are pleasing to bring goodness to you, that you seek to worship, that are trying to find and fill this hole in your heart. Yet I would submit to you, the only thing that I find worthy of belief and of trust is a king who has stood the test of time. Every other religion has failed in some way. 
Every other king has fallen except one. That religion is Christianity named after our king, Jesus Christ. If you're here and you've been let down a thousand times, you've fallen a thousand times, you just have failed, you've longed for something to bring hope and peace, then today you have heard the one thing, the one person that bring hope and peace and rest. His name is Jesus, and he's here ready and willing to receive you as your, his child. Today, I'm going to end with a moment of prayer, and as we always do, our worship team will come forward to lead us in worship, to rejoice in the goodness of God, this good news we have that Jesus lives and reigns for all eternity. My hope and my prayer is that if you're here as a Christian, you would rejoice in that goodness and sing loudly because of his goodness. That if you're here as a non-Christian, that you would look to Jesus and cry out for his shed blood to make a way for you to be forgiven. That you would look upon him and go, Jesus, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And you are the perfect righteous Savior. Forgive me. I want to take a moment and give us some silent few moments to seek the Lord. And then I'll close this in prayer. If you would, would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we come to you today, we recognize we live in a world that feels topsy-turvy and is upside down. Things that just seem like they make sense don't make sense anymore. We see challenges and difficulties and just all these things that are, feel like they're crashing in upon us, Lord. Yet in the midst of that, you are a still, stable rock. As the winds and waves crash around, as these things throw us to and fro, you are stable and anchored. And Lord, we simply desire in the midst of all these things to cling tightly to this rock of Jesus. This steadfast king who has loved us and served us from before the foundations of the earth. This God who has loved and called out to his people even when he knew we would pursue sin and evil. He chose to make a way for us to come back home. Lord, we pray to you for you to have your way upon this gathering. This gospel message of hope, of goodness, of power, of this redeeming work that you bring, we ask you to pour that out upon us. Let us experience your goodness. Let us feel your presence, Lord. Allow the Spirit to convict us of our sin. To show where we have fallen short of your goodness and glory. And lead us to repentance. Let us rest in your goodness, your grace, the forgiveness that you would offer us. Turning away from our sin and looking to you, Jesus. This is the good news that... Though this world is, is in turmoil and distress because of how they live and how they act and what they think, we can find peace 
hope and goodness in the midst of the storm. And Lord, I choose willingly to place my trust and my hope in the one King who still reigns for all eternity. The one Lord who rests over all lords for all eternity. Lord, I put my hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's my prayer today, Father, that those that are listening, that are gathered online, wherever they are, that they would hear this good news and they would call out to the God of the universe for redemption and for forgiveness. Lord, have your way with your people and bless us now with your presence. We pray these things in your name. Amen.